Ladies, ladies a leisure, ladies, ladies a leisure, ladies, ladies a leisure, leisure. Welcome to Ladies of Leisure. I'm Fuljana, and this episode has a very, very special guest. It's featuring my very dear friend, Julie Pierce. Say hi, Julie. Hello, everyone. How are you? I'm great. We're going to talk a lot about just different things about you, but one of the big things that I'm just so proud of is how far you have come in your career and how much you impact women's lives every single day. So without further ado, we'll get started. I also want to highlight that Julie has a bunch of letters at the end of her name. So let her introduce herself. So Jewel, what is your current title considered to be? So my current title is I'm a breast cancer nurse navigator. Okay. And can you tell our listeners what does a nurse navigator do and how did you get interested in the field of nursing? Sure. So a nurse navigator is a nurse specifically that is subspecialized in oncology and I specifically focus on just breast cancer patients. So I guide patients as they move through the healthcare system. We do barrier assessments if that's financial, resource-based, education, transportation, psychosocial, and we help to assess those and remove those barriers to the patients on like an individualized basis. We help addressing the practical problems, so if they're having issues with their loved ones or issues with their jobs. We also help with guidance and emotional support. We run support groups for them. Wow. Can you tell me, so you actually run a support group, right? I do. I run a support group. And and how, I mean, how, did, how does that work? Like, what, what do you teach for the support group and things like that? Admittedly, I mean, at first it was pretty awkward. Most of the patients, just by the nature of breast cancer, my group is women older, usually postmenopausal. But, I mean, it's just group dynamics. What you do is you introduce the group, you introduce the ground rules, and then you kind of let the participants take it from there. You let them feed off of each other, and you're there to moderate. Okay. To make sure that they're not spreading falsities. You're just, I'm just there to, as the nurse, correct any misgiv- like misguided information they have, but it's mostly they speak about their own perspectives, and they share, like, the emotional aspects of it. So it's, it's interesting. Wow. That's kind of, I mean, I imagine that at first starting, it was probably, like, a little intimidating and overwhelming, because I would think that, like, patients would want you to fully understand, like, I am, you know, perhaps I have cancer, and how would you know, or, like, something along those lines. Did you run into any of that personally, or did you, I mean, I guess you have a nursing perspective, so it's probably different, right? I mean, I've been doing this for six years, and every once in a while, you do get a patient that's like, well, you don't know. You don't have cancer. And my beginning of my career is like, I'm so sorry. I didn't know that. But now I'm, like, pretty comfortable, like, redirecting the conversation away from myself because sometimes people can take their anger out on you, and it's yeah. not you. So you simply say things like, well, you know, I've actually been doing this a very long time. I've seen a lot of scenarios. This is what helps my patients in the past. Seems like you're going through something similar. Just to make sure to depersonalize it from you don't want to be that focus point on someone's anger. And usually that really rarely happens. Yeah, for sure. So you've also stepped a little bit, given your nursing career, you've also stepped a little bit deeper into understanding health and things. Can you tell our audience kind of what your education is in and some of the certifications you might have and all of that stuff? 
So yeah, I'll start with my certifications. I have an oncology certified nurse, which is the specialization with general oncology. Okay. And then I got a further certification in breast cancer nurse navigation. Wow. So what does that certify? You can protect the titus? Absolutely. No, I mean, it's just I have an expert level knowledge of breast cancer. Okay. So very, very subspecialized now. Have you, given your background and stuff, have you run into now people that you know being diagnosed and kind of being close to home where you're providing some level of advice or care to your own, someone that might be within your circle perhaps? Yeah. I mean, I've had relatives be diagnosed with breast cancer, but I think as a breast cancer nurse, I'm not... Uh, don't ever get overly concerned by it just because I've seen a lot of good outcomes. Yeah. So I think that's been interesting. Yeah, I bet. I feel like I would, it would be hard. I mean, again, I think nurses are kind of like secret champions because it's like the thankless job. You just do so much and then doctors take so much credit. But I think I would have, it would take a while for me to adjust to being able to separate like this is professional and then like not being aggressively connected to my patients, you know, that kind of thing, especially if it was someone that maybe I knew within a circle of friends or something like that. Yeah, I think it's different if you know someone, you have a personal, like the family member that I was, that was diagnosed with breast cancer, my focus was like managing their anxiety. Yeah. I was mostly focused on that because I knew that the type of breast cancer she had and the age in which she had it, things were going to go very well. Good. But I think there's stories that hit closer to home with patients. But yeah, I think over training, you get desensitized or you just have to know you're there when you're at work, you're fully present, but you have to go home yes. and have your own social life or have you like, you can't take it home Absolutely. or then you're doing no one a favor. Absolutely. So we talked a little bit about, you never got to finish, sorry, we rambled a little bit, but tell us the rest of your education and how you got into, you know, Oh, All sure. the nursing stuff. So I just graduated with my master's of science in health and medical policy. Whoop, whoop. Yes. <laughs> very happy. It took me a long time going part-time, but it was well worth it. So I think you wanted to know a little bit more about it. So basically health and medical policy is dealing specifically with public policy issues that surround healthcare uh -huh. and government organizations, such as like the federal government and the state level and how you would implement legislation or how you develop certain aspects of like public health and how you implement them and how you assess their success, thinking of like the positive and negatives and the externalities of the policy that you would put in place. So it's more like a systems look at policy. So was it something that you saw in your career that pushed you more towards that? Or did you realize in your career that you are, you didn't necessarily want to do kind of on the floor nursing, you wanted to be more part of like the policies that set nursing practices in place? I guess a little or, bit. Of, I yeah. guess everything. I had a professor my senior year of nursing school that said not enough nurses do advocacy work or policy work since it's such a unique profession. If you're not in it, you really don't understand it. Uh -huh. So that stuck with me. And when I was looking to get my master's degree, I know I didn't want to be a hospital administrator. I didn't want to get my MSN, which would just lead to teaching or nursing school. So I wanted to use my nursing background to affect change, apparently. So, you know. Oh, I love that. You know I'm a sucker for something sentimental. <laughs> right. So I want to do advocacy work on behalf of patient populations or at-risk patient populations or nurses themselves. So do lobbying on that piece. Cool. That's great. 
So based on your recent master's degree in, you know, health policy, what maybe policy or policies should women even and men be paying close attention to and what kind of actions would you say that civilians could do to support women's health care or health care for women I should say if or if that's even a concern I think it's always a concern obviously there's two issues that are going to come up there's the Obamacare, so the Affordable Care Act, over, ever re- overturning that. I think a lot of people don't understand what aspects of the Affordable Care have affected people with private insurance. Through the Affordable Care Act, there's parity for mental health coverage for those who have health insurance, even private. Uh-huh. Those who have private health insurance can keep their children up to the age of 26 on their insurance. So it right. gives your kids at the end of college wiggle room. It also protects pre-existing conditions. Which is huge for so many women. I and I mean, I would say people in general, but I know like for me personally, I had some, you know, lady issues and it was mm-hmm. like that if I had to go on to like public health care or something would be, you know, would go against me technically, right? Right. So there's protections in place even outside of the insurances that are bought on the exchanges. Another thing that Obamacare did was you don't have lifetime limits. So prior to Obamacare, you could have a lifetime limit for like a disease, you know, like a specific disease that you had. You could get denied for your pre-existing conditions. So there's a lot of things that are protective. Also, it prays for your primary care visits or your preventive health things. So your mammography, your prostate cancer screening, your cervical cancer screening, yeah. um, a well visit. So there's a lot of protections in place outside of the health insurance exchanges or Medicare, Medicaid expansion. Yeah. No, that's amazing. Free birth control. Free birth control. <laughs> Please don't take that away from us, anybody. <laughs> no, that's really cool. So what about, I guess I asked you, how you've spent a majority of your career in oncology. Yes. And I imagine I, I that seems like a hard field to be in because, it, you know, we still don't have like, we have a lot of treatments, it seems like, for cancer, but we don't have a cure for cancer. Is that accurate to say? Yes. Okay. So how would you say, you know, specifically working with breast cancer, how would you say it's affected you and then your views as well? I think it's given me a certain perspective. Not that it's decreased my anxiety. I have, you know, anxiety for other things, but it's giving you, like, it helps you put things into perspective from a, if you or outside looking in, you can kind of step back and say, like, this isn't a big deal, or it gives you an understanding of what other people go through. Like, you understand, like, I, Julie, have a prerogative, but other people have prerogatives outside of you. So it's an interesting perspective of, like, what's important, what's not important, what yeah. you should focus on. It's. I mean, I think any department of nursing can be... Str- I think cancer just has that... Heavy sad. That heavy sadness, yeah. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. Do you think that, I guess maybe it's a more general question for nursing, but do you think that nurses just keep, just reach this level of like sheer exhaustion just based on the constant emotional and physical demands of their job, like more so than maybe another profession? I think so. Or is there like a chronic issue with that? I mean, nursing burnout is a huge issue. There's a nursing shortage. There's always a nursing shortage. But as patients, 
are sicker, the baby boomers are starting to age and become bigger consumers of the health healthcare services and they're sicker and they're li- living longer and worse off, it can be very emotionally draining. Because when you're on the floor, you have to be 100% present. You really have to be selfless. You can't, it's not about you. You don't get to take a break. Right. And you're working shifts, right? And you're working shifts and you have a like, it's just a demanding role and like more and more nurses are responsible for more. There's more paperwork, there's more demands. So it can be very draining and also it can be very frustrating. So yeah, nurse burnout is a huge thing. I'm not on the floor anymore though. So yeah, but I imagine still, I mean, you're like with being a nurse navigator, I think you're doing a different aspect of, of, you know, nursing care, but you're still in charge. I mean, you're still heavily involved because when I, when I Mm -hmm. talk to you, you're running a nursing group, you're organizing some organization to perhaps donate something for the support group and things like that. So, you know, it seems like there's still a a different level of kind of challenges that are associated with it. Yeah, you definitely have to put others first and, you know, you're working crazy shifts as a nurse, you're working holidays, you're working weekends, you have to be on. Sometimes you can't come first, which can be difficult. For anybody. For anyone. Or you, it's just a thankless job sometimes, but it's very rewarding. Yeah. Don't get me wrong, but it's just with the current healthcare system, it's very stressful. Yeah. Have you ever been in a situation, and granted, I know that we like, you know, you've worked in some, you know, prestigious hospitals. Have you been in, I know like, for example, the VA, some mm-hmm. of the challenges with the VA is they have government funding, but they don't have enough funding. And some of the nurses that work there complain that they don't even have like resources to treat their patients. Have you ever been in a circumstance like that where you're like, I don't have even the tools like, or like I'm having to make a decision on whether this person gets this gauze or whatever the circumstances versus that. I don't think it's like with that specifically, the supplies are there that you need. It's more on like the psychosocial aspect of someone's personal life. Like for example, I have a patient she works in a fast food restaurant, but she needs a lot of care for her breast cancer. So she'll, you know, she has a physical job. She doesn't have sick days. She will lose her job because she's going through treatment. Right. So it's those aspects that are difficult because as the hospital, you can't pay her bills. We try, we've given her many resources to try to apply for financial assistance from the government. Mm-hmm. You know, the hospital is not charging her any money because she's in our charity care program. But it's more not that we don't have because you can buy whatever you want. The hospital right. will charge whatever they want. But it's the re- the community resources are scarce. Like this woman yeah. barely got food stamps. Like she's not wow. going to get social security disability. She's not going to get Medicaid because she's not a citizen here. So it's like those That's aspects. a lot. That's, I mean, stressful on her. But mm-hmm. it's also like, it's, it's almost like she's damned if she does and if she doesn't. Exactly. So it's, it's, you can, as a hospital employee, you can apply for all these things for her. You can help her follow up. But those are the types of things that are out of your hands. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's hard. So can you walk me through the process of how, like, if I were to be, God forbid, if I were to be diagnosed mm-hmm. with cancer, where how the process might proceed and then where you would come in and how that would work. Sure. So we try to meet with as navigators as soon as possible after diagnosis. So we'll talk about breast cancer specifically. Okay. Since that's my bread and butter. That's what I know about. So basically you can come 
to the women's imaging department by two ways for breast cancer. You can either come for your annual mammogram and then something's found on the screening mammography, or you can come with a symptom and it's found on the diagnostic mammogram. Okay. So they'll find an issue on the mammogram. They'll call you back. They'll do a biopsy. Okay. Once they do a biopsy and they review the pathology from that biopsy that you had, they'll you know, tell you you have breast cancer and then most breast cancer patients see the breast surgeon first. Okay. To see if they're, if it's to do the removal, if they're. Right. Well, at at that point in time, that's when I meet with a lot of patients. They meet with a breast surgeon and they start learning about what breast cancer they have because there's many different types of breast cancer because there's hormonal related breast cancer and then there's non-hormonal related breast cancer. Okay. Can you give us a synopsis of of both and how that would go? So, there's three hormones related to breast cancer. The most common is estrogen, followed by progesterone, and then HER2 new. Oh, I've never heard or heard of HER2 new. Okay. Yes, it's a newer, the newest one that we found several, you know, a long a while ago now, but it's the newest one. So most breast cancer is caused by exposure to estrogen. Okay. So you're then that's what causes your tumor to grow. Okay. So the over estrogen production essentially potentially grows your tumor? Is that? No, I don't like to think of it like that because people are like, well, what did I do wrong? How was I producing too much estrogen? It's just like everyone has a different threshold. Right, because your hormones might be, Mm -hmm. okay, all right, got it. So there's no magic number of estrogen that you're exposed to. It's one of those mysteries. You could have been exposed to lower rates of estrogen in your lifetime, but you got breast cancer and I was exposed to higher rates of estrogen just because of my body and I never got breast cancer. Okay. So it's very random. One in eight women get breast cancer after menopause, but estrogen is the big one. And then and progesterone. They don't really treat that directly hormonally, but we'll get into that. And then HER2 new, which is a more aggressive type of breast cancer, is treated by hormone targeting chemotherapies, basically. Okay. So if you're HER2 new positive, nine times out of 10, you're definitely getting chemotherapy. And is HER2 new considered like a, a cell of some sort or? It's a hormone it's, receptor it's on hor- the tumor. Okay. Got it. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. I'm so smart. <laughs> no, this is so enlightening. Yes. So those are the three hormones. And then some women are triple negative and that's just like a tumor growing, but no hormone is causing it to grow. Okay. And that's the most aggressive kind. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Cause you can't treat it. Like you can't manipulate it via the hormones. So if you have an estrogen positive breast cancer, you can take hormonal therapy or essentially anti-hormonal therapy to reduce your circulating estrogen. Okay. So there's no, no circulating estrogen available okay. to feed it. That makes sense. And then the her 2 monu? her 2 new. her 2 new. Since it's not, you can't, you can't manipulate that. You can't. Yeah, no, you yeah. can. That's, oh, you can. I'm sorry. That's it's part, that's, basically a monoclonal antibody, which is a type of immunotherapy. Oh, okay. Okay, got it. So it's a key, like a chemo-like drug. Got it. Okay, and so those are the hormonal... Those are hormonal ones. Horno, hormonal options for breast cancer. Mm-hmm. Sounds awful. <laughs> okay, what's our, what's our <laughs> entree for breast cancer here? What's breast cancer number two version? Just a non-hormonal, non-hormonal kind of triple kind. negative. Oh, triple negative. Okay, got So there's it. estrogen receptor positive breast cancer, which can be in any combinations. It can be estrogen progesterone positive, ERPR positive, ERPR HER2 new positive. Okay. ER negative per progesterone positive, HER2 negative. So there's like tons so, of... Tens of combinations, many basically. combinations. I can't do math right now. No, that's okay. You don't need to tell me. I, it, it all sounds very smart. I'll tell you that much. But it's very interesting. I just, I mean, the late, like the dumb me was just like, 
breast cancer. It's all the same. You just, no, you know, it's I very knew there different. Was, I knew there was different stages of There's, breast yep. cancer. I just didn't realize that everyone can potentially have a different type of breast cancer. Absolutely. And there's different cell types. There's different stages. There's different hormone like combinations. There's different stages of life. So basically that's like each cancer treatment has to be very specialized to the patient, right? There wouldn't be... Yeah, there's overarching algorithms, but it's definitely when we have to teach the patients. It's just like, just because your friend had a double mastectomy and she went through chemo and radiation doesn't mean that you have the same breast cancer as she does, nor do you require the same treatment. So it's yeah. all an algorithm based off your hormonal state, your stage, your size, your cell type. Mm-hmm. But there's an algorithm for everyone. Wow. I've learned so much. Oh my God. You're so smart, girl. Thank you. <laughs> Don't usually talk about my expertise outside of work. <laughs> well, I think that it's really cool because you're a lot of women that you know, don't experience this. I think hearing this episode, they'll get a chance to maybe understand it just a little bit better. And perhaps if someone is in their life, they'll be able to empathize mm-hmm. a lot better than perhaps they would have before. So, okay. So you get a diagnosis. So they, they go to the surgeon. They go to the surgeon and that's where they start learning about their pathology report specifically. Okay. And the surgeon's best estimate of what's going to happen after surgery. Okay. So what they do is they get the imaging, the mammogram, they get the pathology report. They meet with their surgeon. Okay. It's a very long appointment. And the surgeon kind of give them, gives them the highlights, like what to expect next. Then usually after the surgeon meets with them, I meet with them and re-explain it all. Wow. Just to kind of say like, this is why we're doing this. If then, then this. If that, then this. Kind of explaining the different treatment routes. Mm-hmm. A lot of it's patient choice though. So if your tumor size is small enough, which the majority are, you can choose to have what we call a lumpectomy mm-hmm. or a mastectomy. So is an and is a mastectomy when you're they cut off your breasts? Yes, your breast is removed. Okay, and then the lump is they just remove the they lump. They just remove the lump. Okay, and is there and it's it's very specific. There's not one case is better than the other scenario, right? Or, no, we'll jump ahead a little bit. So okay. for as far as reoccurrence rate or overall clinical survival. A lumpectomy paired with radiation is exactly the same clinical outcome, so overall survival, as getting a mastectomy. Okay. Got it. Wow. Mm-hmm. So it almost doesn't behoove you to like lose an entire... Well, it depends on your breast. personal... So if you have the choice between the two, it depends on your personal goals. Mm-hmm. Some women can't stand the thought of getting another mammogram the rest of their life because this has caused them such great anxiety. They choose to do a bilateral... Well, this is one of the reasons they choose, not all. They choose to do a bilateral mastectomy with reconstruction. Wow. Other people are like, I don't want an intense surgery. I understand my disease is very small. I rather have a lumpectomy. And radiation. And radiation, and I'm done with it. My breasts are large in size. So taking a small lump out, I, I don't care about symmetry. Other women okay. have small breasts. And the tumor size is too large, so they have to get a mastectomy, even though maybe their tumor size is small, but relative to their breast, it's big. Other women get a lumpectomy paired with a breast reduction. So it's... it's oh, it's a, a smorgasbord of choices, basically. And that's one of the most overwhelming pieces is choosing the right surgery for you, because every patient wants to know, well, what's the right surgery? 
and you kind of have to say, like, you really need to think about what your goals are, and we're going to explain to you all the pros and cons. Yeah. That's so interesting. And so if I were to opt for a lumpectomy, then basically, depending on the size of the lump and stuff, there would be essentially a deformity in that part of my breast. Is that they can bring in they, it, That's a potential if you don't choose to use a plastic surgeon, which is all covered by insurance. We can talk about that. So... I'll give you a scenario. I have like a 75-year-old patient. She Uh has an estrogen receptor positive breast cancer that's invasive ductal, that's stage one. This is the most common type after menopause. Okay. She's like, you know, maybe she's very physically active. And she's like, I could not, I don't, I want to get back to yoga and I'm a weightlifter or this is an actual scenario. Wow. So she's, she's a badass. She's a badass, complete badass. And she's like, I understand She's like, I just want the lump back to me with radiation. I want to get back out there. I don't care what it looks like. And yeah. nine times out of 10, it looks great. There could be a small divot, but she's like, I'm 75 years old. I don't care. Yeah. I have other women who she's like 40 years. And it's not age dependent. This is just my, she's like 40 years old. She's dating. She's like, I want the lump back to me. I want the radiation. I too am very active and I don't want this elaborate surgery of getting a mastectomy and all this reconstruction. Right. But I don't, I'm concerned about the appearance. That point in time, they can bring in the plastic surgeon that can do mastopexy, which is like giving a lift to the breast. So kind of doing a tissue rearrangement where it's filling in the divot. Oh, that And makes giving sense. it a lift. Oh, so I you're could still probably benefit getting, from that. <laughs> we all could. So you're still just having the lumpectomy, but you're bringing in a plastic surgeon to work in conjunction with the breast surgeon to do a symmetry procedure. Okay. So you're still going to get the radiation. You still technically have the lumpectomy. It's just you've got a tissue rearrangement, essentially, by doing a breast lift. That makes sense to me, at Mm -hmm. least. Wow. Okay. Or they can remove, you know, they can do a reduction on the other side to match it. Oh, nice. So so then, so you meet with, so they get a diagnosis, they meet Mm -hmm. with the surgeon, you reiterate their options, and then... What? Are you overwhelmed yet? No, I'm obsessed. It's so interesting. Because everyone, so then what you have to do is after you meet with a surgeon and then you're not even deciding on surgery at this point in time, you're learning all of this stuff and you're overwhelmed. It's kind of a whirlwind. Then you need to do further staging workups. Now that you've had a breast cancer diagnosis Uh and it's invasive ductal. Okay. Which means? Invasive ductal means it's a type of tumor, it's a type of cell, like your ductal, it's just the most common type, the ductal cells in your breast. It's invasive. So there's the grading of the tumor. Uh-huh. Grade one looks most normal to your breast tissue. Uh-huh. Grade two, it's looking a little more abnormal. And grade three is the highest grade. And that's kind of, I think about it is the most abnormal looking cell. Okay. So basically cancer is cancer because it's a cell, a breast cell uh-huh. that's not functioning as a breast cell should. Okay. Like a breast t- tissue cell. It's should. an abnormality. It's an abnormality. Your- and invasive means it's bothering its neighbors and kind of crowding the neighbors out. Yeah. And then it can get into the lymph node system and spread to places it's it should like not Trump be going. It's like Trump in the neighborhood. Right. The it's assholes. invading the neighborhood. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or it's like uh, being a party crasher. Yeah. Oh, gosh. So basically that's what a breast cancer is. It's just a cell that's not performing as it should. Okay. Got it. Got it. Okay. What was the rest of your question? So, <laughs> so, I, so I said you... What, so we... It was right, the steps. State, yeah. And so you said that 
the candidate comes to you, you go over it, and then they have to go for additional assessment. Right. Sorry. So then they go for an MRI. Even if they have ductal carcinoma in situ, which is an abnormal cell that's not invading its neighbors, it can. We have to assess if it's anywhere else in the breast. Uh-huh. And I always get this wrong, so bear with me. But you, an MRI is very. It's either sensitive or specific. No, it's very sensitive. Okay. But sometimes it's not specific enough. So you don't want to get an MRI without having a breast cancer diagnosis because it could just show a junk, false positives. Okay. So MRI is part of the staging workup. And if it appears like it's in your lymph nodes, okay. then you get further imaging like a PET scan or a CT scan. To essentially determine that it's sp- potentially Where it's spread. spread to. Okay. Has it spread to your bones? Okay. So Leading can, to other types of other cancer, basically. Or no, just okay. Every so that's a, always a misnomer. So if okay. I have breast cancer, and God forbid it has went into my lungs, uh-huh. it's abnormal breast tissue growing in my lung space. It doesn't change the lung oh. cancer, and that's why it's can't. That's why it's bad. Cause like you don't. It's an abnormal breast cell growing in, in your lung. Wow. So you don't need it there. So that's yeah. you know, like the backbone of like what cancer is. It's oh. cells, cells invading and not performing what they should be doing. Oh my gosh. It's You're, a very simplistic way of looking at it. Yeah. Very simplistic way. You're blowing people's minds. I know we're <laughs> going to get a lot of comments about this episode. This is amazing. Hopefully I'm explaining it clearly. But that's part of my job is explaining it very in lay terms. Yes, of course. So once they've gone through those things, is there additional then? Right. That- so they, you kind of get your preliminary staging. You never have your final staging until surgery. Okay. But you have your staging and diagnosis that that's generally what we use. So depending on your stage of disease uh-huh. and your hormonal receptor status, you either start with surgery or chemotherapy. Okay. Most people start with surgery, so that's where they choose between lumpectomy or mastectomy. Mm-hmm. And then if you're getting a lumpectomy, you'll get your lumpectomy, and then if you don't need chemotherapy, you'll get your radiation, and then you'll go on your hormonal therapy. Okay. Wow. The more extreme one is if you get your, like let's give you the most extreme example. You get your, or the one that was the highest acuity. You get your mastectomy, you then require chemotherapy. Okay. Then you get your radiation. Okay. And then I didn't explain this further, but your mastectomy, usually if they know you're getting radiation, you get an expander put in, which is a placeholder for your implant because we need to make oh, room. Oh, you got to stretch the skin. You're so smart. Yes, you have to stretch <laughs> the skin. So then after your radiation, because radiation tightens your skin, then you get the expander removed and replaced with your permanent implant. And then you go on your hormonal therapy if you're hormone receptor positive. Oh my gosh. And then, so, and then treatment can, how long would, is treatment time frame dependent for each Yeah, it's person? dependent on what your chemotherapy regimen is. If you require chemotherapy, that takes the longest. So usually it's a commitment if you do require chemotherapy for a year. Yeah. And then if you require the other treatment for the HER2 positive disease, that's another year on that drug, but you start to, that's just once every three weeks and it's not as bad as chemo. And so for so for something like this, uh, insurance is always such a heavy issue when it comes mm-hmm. to just care in general. But you said earlier that there are some programs, like if a, depending on, is it dependent on income? Yes. For, for 
patients. If you're, let's say you have like decent insurance, what, if you have a diagnosis, maybe like, and all of that, what would, what's the average cost of like over, let's say the course of a year for all that treatment? Do you happen to know? I don't. It's okay. pretty I would think opaque. it's expensive. It's very expensive, but your insurance is paying most of it. And then you're paying like, you have to know what your deductible is. So if you have a high deductible, you know, you're out of pocket $5,000 up yeah. front because your imaging is already going to take care of that. Right. So a lot of people get really anxious at the end of their plans because they want to fit their the bulk of their treatment in so they're not paying. Yeah, that makes sense. Because you could have a copay for every doctor visit you go to. Well, most copays are different because you have to pay your copay every time. But that's $25 like twice a week. Or if you're seeing like the breast surgeon, then you're seeing the radiation oncologist, then you're seeing the medical oncologist, then you're seeing a physical therapist. That just adds up quickly. So copays don't go away, but it's the deductibles that yeah. can be very expensive. That's such a, it's, it's, it almost sounds a little bit like a vicious cycle. Like you were talking about the gal that's, you know, working mm-hmm. in a certain type of job. If you don't, if you're not in a position career wise where you don't perhaps get sick leave or things like that, it's almost like you have all these, you obviously have a will to live and survive right. and get treatment and all that stuff. But then you're in such like hard circumstances where it's almost hard to get the treatment that you need to get. And so it's just managing that is that, wow, I'm just impressed that you like deal with all that stuff. That's, and that goes back to health policy. Yeah. And it, <laughs> full circle. Here full we circle. are. <laughs> right. Because no one's life is better than others because they have better insurance or they're in a better socioeconomic state like state and yeah people automatically assume and very wrongly like as soon as you get a cancer diagnosis and you're unemployed you always get Medicaid no you don't yeah and nor do you get disability insurance so wow so yeah a lot of you're just debunking a lot of myths for us which is the whole point (laughs) right so yeah that's kind of where we're at with healthcare and reform and it's very interesting that's what got me interested in it is being exposed to cancer patients and understanding that cancer affects your whole life. Was there, so while, because for a while you did do on the floor nursing, mm-hmm. was there, is or is there perhaps, maybe even now, is there a patient that really perhaps sticks out in your mind or that you really kind of like connected to just based on their circumstances or anything like that? And if, if not, that's fine. I think but- there's a, like several patients. I mean, there's always patients that you're closer with. Like you meet people you would never be friends with and you meet people you would be friends with. Yeah. And the sicker the patient is usually just from the navigation standpoint, the closer you are with them. So right. that's always been difficult. I've always had like favorite patients and yeah. then, you know, they are ill and they have passed. Right, right. I just, I guess I'm amazed like, what kind of impact that could you know have on on your life and their life because you're at the, you're you're there for them at such a like mm-hmm. critical stage of like a life chi- potentially life changing well, right. scenario you know so you're just a saint jewel <laughs> no, I don't know I think you just have boundaries like what you can and can't deal with like yeah. you know people always want to invite you over to their house for dinner or they want to get lunch with you and you always have to like just maintain a respectful distance because then you don't want to become unethical or, you know, there is a boundaries that you have to maintain. Right. Wow. Okay. So we'll trans, so that's, so that's basically the full process, correct? Or is there more? Basically the highlights. The highlights. All right. (laughs) Okay. So we'll transition a little bit into something a little bit away from that. But if, well, I have two questions. First question would be if if someone hears this and you've inspired them to perhaps 
they currently pursue nursing or they're thinking about nursing, is there anything based on like your education or your experiences that you would recommend for 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 that for that gal or guy? So basically, like, what advice do you have for women that might want to pursue a career in the field of nursing or nurse navigation? Well, for, I'll start with nursing first. I would recommend that you would first become a patient care tech okay. to see if that you can handle that. Okay. So as a patient care... What it's is a nurse's it? aid. Okay. Got it. Because you have to understand like what you're going to be asked to do in the situations that you're going to be placed in because no one can avoid working on the floor and as no one should. You have yeah. to work on the floor because you have to like be exposed to people from different cultural backgrounds, socioeconomic standpoints. You're working with people from all over the spectrum. So yeah. to really understand what a nurse goes through and like the culture, I would definitely first become a patient care tech uh-huh. to see if like that's something you want to pursue. Because I think there's like, nursing can be romanticized, but you know, when you're changing an adult diaper at 11 o'clock at night when your friends are out partying. Yeah. Drastic Drastic difference. difference. <laughs> or when you're getting yelled at, you can't find the physicians, you're in awkward situations, just... Right. But and I got through it anyway. I mean... Yeah. Well, you're tough. <laughs> yeah. You get, you're, you get tough. Yeah. Is there anything else that you would recommend? I think it's someone who likes to help people and have the ability to be selfless and you know, there's creative problem solving, there's team, you know, working as part of a team, you know, as you're, you're a person that doesn't like to sit at a desk and you like kind of a little bit of drama in your life. Yeah. Cause it can be very fast paced. It can just be, you're never going to, it's never boring. Yeah. Then you should consider nursing. And you know, if you're in a person who wants a career change and you want to make good money, it's definitely, and you want to have flexible hours, you can pursue it. Okay. Yay. Okay, well, I think that kind of wraps up our little education session and bonus episode. Oh, wait, I had another question. Um, what? Crap, what was my question? I don't remember. Doesn't matter. You can text me. <laughs> I'll text you. So with that, we're going to wrap up our lovely little education episode with the one and only Julie Pierce. And that's a wrap. LOL. LOL.